0: to the deep sea podcast pressurized a short punchy version of our full length shows so if you want to get right to the scientific point this is the place to be if you really enjoy the topic and you think actually you know i'd like to know more just match the episode number and you'll be able to find the full length episode in our feed and now to get right to the point Hi, Deep Sea Podcasters. Tom here. This is a pressurized version of our Deep Sea Mining episode. And I just wanted to do a little intro to let you folks know that this episode was released in December in 2020, and a lot has happened since then. So it's still a good intro to what deep sea mining is and the political landscape, but things have progressed. Little reminder of the DOSI newsletter if you want up to date deep sea mining, they cover that very well as well as lots of other deep sea news so be sure to subscribe to that so with all that said on with the episode
1: Deep sea mining is something we're going to talk about quite a lot this episode. We've even got two guests this time. And that's because deep sea mining is a big subject and we're not going to delve too deep into it because you could probably do an entire podcast on deep sea mining alone. It has all sorts of elements to it which are both interesting, fascinating, encouraging, tragic, every color of the rainbow to be honest. For those unfamiliar with deep sea mining, it's where large areas of polymetallic nodules or active or extinct hydrothermal vents create these what are called massive sulfide deposits and these contain lots of interesting and particularly valuable metals such as silver, gold, copper, manganese, cobalt, zinc. All these metals that we need as a civilization to satisfy a rising demand and technology. That's the bottom line, we need stuff, and there's stuff on the seafloor. The problem is to get the stuff on the seafloor, we destroy the seafloor. And that's where a lot of this contentiousness comes from. The important point is that many seafloor minerals are in great demand for use in things like smartphones, supercomputers, electric cars, solar panels, wind farms, and all sorts of other new technologies. And Cobalt, for instance, is branded as the world's primary Technology metal. And it's an element increasingly needed in the production of lithium-ion batteries to power technologies like smartphones and electric cars. Now going back to the news, it wasn't it was only last week, I think, that Boris Johnson came out with this plan that put a ban on new petrol and diesel cars in the UK from 2030, and everything's got to go to electric. That's great news for greenhouse gases and air pollution and everything else. But then what it does do is say, right, we need a lot of cobalt. Where are we going to get that from? So anyway, so deep sea mining raises questions about environmental impact. We're looking at areas which can be as deep as 5,000 meters, you know, really large-scale disruption of ecosystems we don't entirely understand. This is where you start to get into this complicated web of world economics, of technology races, of exploration races, of resource exploitation, resource exploration, science and environmental concerns, and politics, and everything else. Scientists are pretty much called for... A ban or at least a a hell of a lot of precautionary legislation of deep sea mining And deep sea mining companies are pretty much all for it By by the very nature of what they do And in the middle is this International Seabed Authority So we're going to explore a little bit about that in a minute with our second guest Our first guest though We brought in Professor Jeff Drazen, who's from the Department of Oceanography at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. He's a veteran of the big US institutes such as Scripps and Mbari. He's a fish enthusiast at home and at work, and particularly the deep sea flavoured fish. He spends a lot of time at sea. We've worked with him a lot. So Jeff joins us now from Hawaii.
2: Hello, Jeff. How are you, Alan?
1: Good. So today, I want to talk about over the last, I would say, 10 years, is this whole idea of deep sea mining, of moving quite an agricultural filling uh, industry into deep water, which is then in the backyards of where guys like you have been doing the science for years and years and years and years. First of all, for those who don't know what deep sea mining is, can you just explain briefly what scale of what they're after, what how they how they intend.
2: To operate in and, and, and deep water? Sure. Deep-sea mining has been an idea that has been around for many decades, but recently there's been a resurging interest in deep-sea mining. There are minerals on the seafloor, such as cobalt and nickel and copper, rare earth elements, even gold, silver, depending on where in the deep ocean you're looking. And we now have over 7.5 billion people on this planet, and the need for metals is very high. Probably what's pushing forward the latest interest in deep-sea mining more than just a general need for metals, though, is that we are trying to move to a renewable energy economy. And that means we need batteries. We need batteries to store power generated from wind and solar. And we have a huge need for that. Those batteries are currently made out of metals. And so there is a huge drive to seek these metals on the seafloor. There are three main kinds of metal deposits in the deep ocean. The first is at hydrothermal vents. This is where you have plates converging or splitting apart on the ocean floor, and you have magma that percolates through rock, superheats when it hits magma deep in the rock, and drives a lot of minerals out of that rock. They dissolve, and they go shooting back as vents of of water spewing into the ocean. And when that superheated and now mineral-laden water hits cold ocean, you get what are called black smokers or white smokers. All of those minerals precipitate. They all come out of solution and they drop to the bottom. Those create metal deposits and they're rich in zinc and silver and gold. You also have metals that simply glom onto hard surfaces over millions of years in the ocean. And so there are underwater mountains. They're, of course, made out of rock, most, not all exclusively, of course, but but largely. And over millions of years, metals like manganese and cobalt have precipitated onto these rocks and created a film, a crust. And those crusts have the cobalt, manganese, some of which we need for these batteries and other uses. So that's, we've got vents, we've got seamounts. And then the last major deposit is that in areas of the abyssal plains, these are the very open, deepest areas of the ocean. And in certain places on these abyssal plains in the ocean, this is 3,000 to 6,000 meters deep, there are metals that precipitate out of the water, sometimes around a shark tooth. And they create these Potato-sized nodules, they almost look like rocks, but of course they haven't formed, they're not geologically anything like a rock. They're kind of like those seamount crusts, and they just, they're layers that have grown over millions of years that are rich in copper, nickel, cobalt, and manganese. And they cover the seafloor There are two main mining areas right near Hawaii, where I work, Uh, to our south and all the way across towards Central America is the Clarion-Clipperton zone. And this zone is covered with these manganese nodules. And there are currently 16 licenses to explore these metal resources that were issued by the International Seabed Authority. This is the international body. All of this is on the high seas, or a lot of it is. And so it's an international body. If you go to our west off of Hawaii, you have the prime crust zone, which is a region of the Pacific Basin where there are a host of seamounts that are 100 million years old. So they have these very thick crusts of cobalt on them. And so there are several mining claims or exploration claims at this stage in that area as well. So all done and told, I think this is something most people don't realize, but there are over a million and a half square kilometers of seafloor that are under license to be explored for mining. It's, It's an enormous area. Just that manganese nodule area called the Clarion-Clipperton zone that I just mentioned, if you were to take that region and superimpose it on the continental United States, it would stretch from California all the way to New England. It's immense. So mining of these resources could be one of the largest anthropogenic alterations to the surface of our planet that we engage in. So what's your gut feeling in terms of where this
1: industry is right now? When we talk about the size of those licensed areas, realistically, how much could the industry actually mine, let's say, over a period of 10 years? Do you think it's in a situation where we're looking at a mass scale destruction of huge tens of thousands of square miles of seafloor, or is it something that's going to happen over much longer
2: timescales? The estimates vary. It depends on a huge number of factors. And so any number I give here you know, you have to realize there's there's a lot of error around it. Yeah, sure. We anticipate, and if we start at the small scale where we have a little bit more certainty, an individual mining company mining manganese nodules out on the abyssal seafloor, they're going to have to invest billions of dollars in the infrastructure, ships, robotic vehicles to operate on the seafloor. You know, th- these are big scale operations. And they're probably, to be able to make their money back, are going to need to mine we estimate something between 300 and 600 square kilometers of seafloor per year. Wow. That's a lot of seafloor. Yeah. You add that up over 15 years, this is just one contractor, just one company. You, you rapidly approach something in the neighborhood of potentially 15,000 square kilometers in 10 years. That's the direct impact. When we look at it from the mining perspective, you know, that yields quite a lot of mineral resource. But you have to realize that the indirect effects of this mining, they expand well beyond the footprint that I just talked about. Because these mining vehicles, what the current plans are, keep in mind, many of the plans of the companies are confidential, et cetera. And so details are, are lacking. But all companies envision some kind of collector vehicle that will drive across the seafloor. And it's going to scoop up the top layer of mud and all of these nodules down to a depth of about 10 centimeters or so. And it's going to do this in a track that is probably five meters or more wide. All of those nodules and the mud, hopefully will be some separation between the, the nodules and the mud at the seafloor, but a lot of material will be shot up a pipe, probably hydraulically lifted, meaning just shot up with seawater yeah. to the surface. It's gonna go 4,000, 5,000 meters up to a ship where the ore will need to be separated from all of the mud in the seawater. So two things are gonna happen. One, as this vehicle drives across the seafloor, There's going to be damage from the direct impact. That's going to kill the fauna. It's going to remove the nodules, which actually support about half of the big megafauna that live on the seafloor, corals, sea anemones, barnacles, things of this nature. But there's also going to be a big cloud of mud behind the vehicle. The mud on the deep sea floor is really fine clay. These areas are hundreds to thousands of miles away from land. This is very fine material that has sifted down to the bottom. And so when it gets spewed back up into the water column, it's going to take a while before it settles again. And that cloud of mud is going to drop over the seafloor and smother organisms. These organisms normally only experience mud settling down at a rate of a few millimeters in a thousand years. These are some of the clearest ocean waters in the world in the Clarion-Clipperton zone. So this is going to be potentially a very large impact. It expands the area of effect beyond that three to 600 square kilometers per year figure that I gave you. Maybe doubles it or more. But all of that mud that got carried up to the surface with the nodules there, they have to return that mud and seawater back into the ocean. Well, right now it's a little ambiguous as to where that's going to occur. Some contractors say they'll take it back down to the seafloor. So you'll have a bigger cloud of mud down there. But others may discharge this muddy seawater somewhere below 200 meters, hopefully below at least 1,000 meters, if not more. But they're going to put it into the water column, and that's going to have effects that will expand the range of impacts that that mining will have. We don't know how large those clouds of mud will be and how long they will persist, but it's anticipated that these mining operations will occur most days out of the year. So there's the potential to create very large impacts beyond the direct footprint of mining. I think it's also worth thinking about how
1: long it took for those manganese nodules to actually form considering you can remove them all in essentially a matter of months, the recovery time is going to be, a, what, a million years?
2: Yeah, millions of years. I mean, the animals won't have evolved fast enough yes. to, to deal with the absence of this habitat. We've done studies in the Eastern CCZ, Craig Smith, and a host of other European scientists, but everybody finds that the diversity of everything, microbes up to fish in this portion of the ocean is really, really high. And that's partly because you have the regular mud that you often find on the seafloor and then you've got all these nodules and all those nodules provide all kinds of little different habitats, you know, to host this great diversity of life and mining it is going to destroy all that. So with that in mind, I mean, what's your feeling about where industry and science almost collide?
1: I mean, it's easy to say we should never deep sea mine, but I, you know, I'm aware that they are realities to world economics. And as you say, there are like 7 billion people on the planet. And is it a case of some people thinking mining should not take place other people thinking hell yeah it should I'd imagine most people will probably fall into some sort of middle ground where it's acknowledged that it needs to happen but it's preferred that it's it's managed in some way rather than this is the most stupid thing I've ever heard we should never do this. I mean, what's your feeling on that? Do you think that's realistic to think that deep sea mining shouldn't happen? Or is it just a
2: matter of finding some compromise in there somewhere? I I think it is realistic that the deep sea mining does does not have to happen. I do think that there is a huge sector, industrial sector, that thinks that it should happen. There's a lot of people in the middle that, as you say, Think that that you know maybe it should proceed, but we need to have a single contractor proceed first and really fully evaluate this. This portion of the ocean is very poorly known, and so evaluating the actual magnitude of the impacts is very difficult. We yeah. don't have hard numbers. We know it's going to be very bad, but we just don't know over which area. But I think probably the most important part of the question you just asked is we you know we talk about some people think this. Lots of other people think that. This is all portions of a very small group of people. In general, the public is unaware of what deep-sea mining is, and so the public hasn't weighed in. The vast majority of people don't have an opinion because they don't even know what deep-sea mining is. Oftentimes, it's posed as deep-sea mining or horrible child labor in Africa, because one of the main cobalt sources in the world is the, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and they yep. use child laborers. But there is a, there's a big resource there in Africa. A lot of the companies don't want to deal with that environment. They don't want to support those terrible labor practices, and they don't want to deal with the uncertainty of working with you know, less than stable governments and and economies. But if you took the billions of dollars that one company is going to invest in ships and technology to mine on the deep sea floor and helped improve the situation in DCR, maybe this problem goes away. I'm not a politician and I'm not a socio-economist. It underlies the complexity of the situation. There are certainly companies that would have you believe the only alternative is to mine the deep sea floor, but that's not really true. I think one of the other positives you can take away from
1: this at the moment is that regardless of what happens, regardless of it, if it happens on a small scale, large scale, or whatever, it's good and reassuring that there has been a lot of exploration and science and guys like yourself and others you mentioned that are going out there and doing it now. At least we've caught this one. At the early stages, which I think is reassuring. So as it goes forward, it's going forward in parallel, regardless of which direction it goes, the industry and science are hopefully moving together and not a case of an industry just spent 20
2: years mining the deep sea and somebody's turned around and went, actually, I don't think that's such a good idea. You're you're completely right. So much of the time, uh science has to play catch-up with the industry. In this deep sea mining case, if we continue to do a lot of research we we're, we're going to have some informed uh, risk management and that that is a really good thing
1: so our next guest is the UN Secretary General Mr Michael Lodge who is from the International Seabed Authority. So Michael Lodge has 28 years of experience as a public international lawyer and has a strong background in the field of law of the sea as well as 10 years judicial experience in the UK and South Pacific. He spent many years living and working in the South Pacific and was one of the lead negotiators for the South Pacific Island states of the 1995 UN fish stock agreements amongst to be honest countless other roles that are probably too long to read out here but he's also a barrister of Gray's Inn in London. So he currently heads the the UN International Seabed Authority based in Jamaica. And uh, so, who better to talk to today than this Secretary General Michael Lodge? The first question, obviously, to you is Is the International Seabed Authority or the ISA. For the benefit of people who may not have heard of this before, what is the ISA and what role does it play in the whole deep sea mining business?
3: Well, hi, Alan. Uh, thanks for having me on. Well, what is the ISA? So, on its face, the ISA is an intergovernmental organization that's part of the united nations family it has hundred and sixty eight member states and it was established by the un convention on the law of the sea which was adopted in nineteen eighty two and came into force in 1994. That's the sort of official bit. But uh, more accurately, what is the ISA? It is a unique experiment in international relations. I've seen it described as a a high point in international communitarian government.
1: Wow, get that on the front door.
3: (laughs) It's the only international organization that actually has regulatory jurisdiction over a single global resource. And in this case, that resource would be Seabed Minerals. So the concept behind it is that there is a shared space, which uh, sometimes we refer to as a global commons, and the ocean is such a shared space. Another example of a shared space might be, for example, Antarctica, which has been recognized as shared between all nations since 1959. That concept also applies to at least part of the ocean. You know, the ocean is a very complex place as you as you know oh yes <laughs> scientifically biologically geologically but also legally so uh, the ocean is split into different maritime zones where the law of the sea convention recognizes sovereign rights over some of those zones i guess a lot of people will be somewhat familiar at least with the idea that most coastal states have an entitlement to a 200-mile exclusive economic zone. They also have a continental shelf jurisdiction in the case where they have a continental shelf. And then there's this uh, separate regime for the seabed beyond 200 miles. And that's where ISA comes in. We have this regulatory jurisdiction over this shared common space beyond 200 miles. I think one of the things that I think your podcast does very well is that it, it helps people to conceptualize what is the deep sea and, and how big it is. Uh, I think most people... I really have very little idea of what 200 miles looks like in the sea, how far away is the deep sea, and how big it is. The ISA, for example, has jurisdiction over 54% of the ocean. Uh Uh, That is the size of the space
1: beyond 200 miles. Where are we right now with deep sea mining? What's, what does the landscape look like right now in terms of how close are we to large scale mineral extraction in areas beyond national jurisdiction?
3: I guess we are a lot closer than we were 25 years ago, but uh, it's debatable how close we are. I think what has happened in the last, uh, say, 25 years is that a number of claims have been made for exploration sites. Exploration has advanced tremendously. Technology has advanced tremendously. Knowledge has advanced tremendously. And so we are at a stage where conceivably deep sea mining could start and could be commercially viable Within the reasonably foreseeable future, but uh, it's it's extremely difficult to put uh, a finger on precisely how long that is because there's uh, there's still a lot of uncertainties out there.
1: What's the position of the ISA in terms of ensuring seabed mining meets and leads, leads transparent environmental impact assessments and, and things like that I mean how does how does ISA try and ensure deep sea mining is not going to be harmful to the environment?
3: Well first of all, you have to remember that the reason ISA was created essentially was to prevent unregulated deep sea mining. It was to prevent competition for resources to stop. At that time, it was particularly, of course, uh, in the Cold War period, the United States and the Soviet Union from competing, uh, fighting over access to minerals, impose a sense of order and to prevent extraction from taking place unless... It can take place in a regulated environment where there is uh, equity of access between, uh, between all states. Another big reason was to simply to prevent the technologically advanced states from going ahead and doing this under the uh, freedom of the, of the high seas in a completely unrestrained way. The fundamental principle is that nobody can go to the deep sea to explore for minerals or even less to exploit minerals without the permission of ISA, without a contract from
1: ISA. So so far there's been what thirty is it thirty still exploration licences issued so far? So like, twenty two different countries are into this now.
3: Yes, so far thirty different contracts, their contracts, mm-hmm. and this this number has increased quite rapidly over the past few years. You know, we started with uh, I think six or seven back in about 2010, and it's escalated quite uh, quite rapidly in recent years, which I think you know illustrates the growing interest in this sector.
1: In keeping with the whole deep sea theme, there's a couple of areas which are really really interesting. Which have already been, they've already been contracts issued for, and one, one the big famous one is the clarion Clipperton fracture zone. If, if anyone who works in science would probably heard of this. One question I came across was, was this idea of designation of large area of special environmental importance? But then there seem to be some sort of confusion over... So to clarify, those are areas where scientists can go and perform baseline studies, right? But they're not the same areas where the mining may take place should the permits be issued.
3: Right. No, they are different. So yes, the, the CCZ, it's a very, very big area. I think about 8 million square kilometers total size. Although the mineralized portion of that obviously is much, much less, probably about a third of that whole area is 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 mineralized and it's probably the best known part of the deep ocean for polymetallic nodules. We've issued I think about 16 contracts uh, across that whole area, but we've also designated these areas of particular environmental interest or APEIs. These are part of something that we call the regional environmental management plan for the Clarion-Clipperton Zone and the APEIs are areas that are set aside. So we will not issue exploration or mining contracts in those areas. There's a network of areas that are supposed to be representative of the various habitats that you find in the CCZ. So they're effectively set aside as a conservation measure. The total area of those APEIs is about 1.6 million square kilometers, which makes them one of the biggest protected areas on the planet. And uh, they were selected through a pretty rigorous scientific process to be fully representative of different habitats. And then uh, agreement was was reached to designate these areas. Of course, we absolutely encourage scientific research in these areas. It would be important to find out what is there.
1: So the, the second case study, if I like, or example that, that popped up was, was the Lost City. For those hmm. who don't know, the Lost City is a hydro thermal vent field that's got these classic black smokers and all these really interesting vent communities around them. But what was happening there? From what I understand, the ISA have granted an exploration license to Poland for the lost city, but at the same time, UNESCO have reported that the lost city qualifies as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. How does that work then? What would we have to bring to not grant the license?
3: So first of all, the Lost City is one of many hydrothermal vent sites around the world, not just on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, although the Mid-Atlantic Ridge is obviously an area that has been very well explored. But you know, we believe hydrothermal vents occur pretty much uh, all around the ocean's ridges, which is, I think, about 60,000 kilometers of ridges around yeah. the whole planet. But uh, yes, the Lost City is a site that is charismatic, one could say, yep. it has been studied a lot, and scientists are very interested in it, and they've had a lot of access to it. You know, they've been studying the lost city for years and years. Scientists have made their whole careers from studying hydrothermal vents. And, you know, in the process, they become very attached to them. (laughs) And and you can see why, because, yes, hydrothermal vents are charismatic uh, ecosystems. and Super interesting. You you mentioned UNESCO. So the first point is that UNESCO doesn't actually have any jurisdiction in the deep sea. So I think you're probably not quite right to say that UNESCO has designated it as anything, because I don't think
1: UNESCO can. They wrote a paper saying that... but would well, otherwise qualify as a world heritage site if it wasn't in international waters. I think that, I think that's what they were saying.
3: Yeah, I think something like that and I think I wouldn't attribute it necessarily to UNESCO the organization. Okay. Right. I would say that authors of a paper that was published by UNESCO made that proposition but uh, it's not a proposition that really holds water legally. You know, when we grant a contract for sulfide exploration, the kind of licensing system that we use is the, is a block system similar to oil and gas. The way that you find hydrothermal sulfide deposits is to effectively track back from active hydrothermal vents to go off the ridge axis to look for the inactive vents, which is where the mineral deposits are. So, you know, that's the geology of it effectively. So when you start to explore, you obviously start to explore from a big area and then you gradually re- go down from a big area to a small area, which is the area where your commercially viable mineral resources are found. So it's not unnatural and it's not abnormal in any way, I think, for an explorer to start off from the active events and then work a way to look around a whole area and find if there's any commercially viable deposits. So in granting an exploration contract to Poland or to any anybody else again all we are doing is giving them the exclusive right in that area to study the mineralogy and at the same time to carry out the environmental studies that i mentioned a moment ago so you know this is good for science this is not supposing in any way that anyone is ever going to mine the lost city that's yeah i mean first of all it's, it's absolutely unlikely that the lost city itself has any mineral resources so why would anybody mine it
1: to tie up the scientific side of this thing you, you mentioned it before but apparently there, you have now launched this you Nations deep sea global database. So, I guess any issues anybody has with anything to do with the CCZ or or, lost city, they can then just be directed to this database.
3: Well, we call it deep data. Uh, That's the name of our database. And yes, all exploration data goes into deep data. Now, some of it is uh, commercial in confidence, which is primarily the data about mineral deposits and commercial deposits, but all the environmental data is uh, freely available. So, yes, what we're aiming to do, because it's a hugely Important part of our mandate is to promote and encourage deep sea scientific research. And I think another point there, Alan, is is, is that there is no finite point where you can say we will ever have enough data because we'll yeah, continue sure. to learn. Yeah and more as we go along. And, you know, this is often a point made by anti-mining campaigners that, uh, you know, we need to do X amount of more research before we will reach a certain point when we'll know enough. Well, no, we won't. We'll continue to learn all the time because that data collection process will never, ever stop.
1: So there's no threshold then. There's no sort of written down threshold either from ISA regulations or from the scientists coming to you that says, this is the level we need to be at before we can make an informed decision. Or is it still completely arbitrary?
3: No, it's not arbitrary at all. There has to be an adequate baseline, which has been defined by ISA standards already. But the, the process is fairly standard that you will need to submit an environmental impact assessment, and that will have to be evaluated. And it will then be determined if the impact that is projected is acceptable. You know, this is not anything new in the, in the world of environmental regulation. It's uh, pretty much the same as regulating any other activity offshore.
1: So assuming that environmentally everything's agreed upon and extraction starts, what happens to the money once the rocks start coming out of the ground?
3: Well, obviously, the financial issues is another big uh, area of negotiation. And you can imagine that there's very widely ranging views on the financial terms. For those who really care about this stuff, you can go to our website and you can look at all the documents on this. And you can look at studies that we've had done by uh, MIT On the economic case for mining, but effectively the the concept of ISA is that whereas on land you would have to pay royalties to the government or the landowner, in the deep sea there is no landowner as such. So you have to pay royalties to the ISA Hmm. Uh, and those royalties need to be, I think the actual legal uh, provision is something like they must not unduly advantage or disadvantage deep sea miners compared to land-based miners. Right. Sort of in that in that ballpark. Once we get those royalties, then yes, they are to be shared, and they are to be shared for the benefit primarily of developing countries, or in such a way as to favor developing countries and particularly the least developed. So how you get there is a very difficult question that is not yet resolved. Oh. The convention itself doesn't give a lot of guidance on that apart from saying we have to develop some equitable sharing criteria.
1: So there are no other real alternatives then is with the scale you're talking at and the volume that we think society is going to require over the next 3 decades there is no alternative to this.
3: I wouldn't say there are no alternatives because obviously you can go on digging deeper and on land. I mean yeah. yes this is possible. Uh, You know, we are not in any objective sense going to run out of minerals on land, but you will have to spend more to access them. Mm -hmm. The environmental burdens on land are as great, if not greater than those at sea, you're gonna to have to go into more remote locations and you're going to have to dig deeper and deeper with all the attendant environmental problems that that creates. So let's not pretend that mining on land is environmentally friendly, you know,
1: it's not. So what would you wanna see in the next say five, 10 years? What's the, what's the, you know, the next step for deep sea mining and in, in a positive way?
3: Well, in a positive way, I think what we have to do is we have to finalize the regulations around it, which are, mm-hmm. as I say, well on the way, and then I think uh, it will really shift the dynamic and that companies and countries that uh, are interested can start to move ahead and uh, start to do the uh, testing that is necessary. So we can we can actually get an objective sense of what is the impact.
1: One last thing we've talked about this before in the podcast about scale and trying hmm. to picture all this and, and the clarion and clipper and obviously is is massive. I'm just trying to get a sense of if let's say tomorrow morning it's a gold rush anyone who wants to mine go for it yeah how many square kilometres can you even do in a, in a year I don't know how long it would take
3: yeah this is a, this is a super important question and I think is something you really covered well in your storytelling podcast is that and, and again I really feel this that most people in the world except perhaps Pacific Islanders who live in the ocean have no sense whatsoever of the scale and size of the ocean the Claring Clipperton zone is massive right yeah it's less than one percent of the whole ocean if you were to mine the whole of the mineralized portion of the clarion clipperton zone it would take you about six thousand five hundred years so this is never going to happen
1: all right and that note that was fascinating on that note secretary general michael lodge thank you very much
3: Thank you. It has it's been a pleasure talking to you.
1: So there you go. That was Michael Lodge of the ISA. And it's funny to think that if the ISA are responsible for 54% of the planet and Mr. Lodge is head of that organisation, then he's responsible for more of the geographical area of the planet than anybody else. So I just want to clarify the point about the Lost City and the UNESCO World Heritage Qualifying Status. And the Lost City is a totally unique low-temperature alkaline vent. It's not a black smoker, as I wrongly said in the interview. Apologies for that. But it is of paramount scientific interest because it's thought that it may be one of the only analogues to currently on Earth today that represents conditions of the primeval Earth and so on. So it is a really unique site, and it's not like other hydrothermal vents. Regarding this World Heritage status, UNESCO report number 44, entitled World Heritage in the High Seas, an idea whose time has come, was in fact published in 2016 by UNESCO and IUCN, and by authors from both. So if you, can, you can easily get it on the internet. Lost Cities talked about on page 32, and it explains in some detail. Why the Lost City qualifies as a potentially outstanding universal value in the high seas? Because it meets four of the criteria for heritage justification so anyway so that's just a misunderstanding somewhere down the line but that was was put out two years before poland was granted the exploration license so there you go i was right about that but wrong about the black smoker other things i thought were interesting was things about environmental impact from exploration activities and i think the clarion Clipperton zone is so huge that the environmental impact from exploration alone is probably relatively small but i do think that any impacts around vents are probably going to be much higher because these are really small in terms of area, these are island communities that live there, and I think they will be highly vulnerable to disturbance from human activities, including science. I mean, let's not forget that scientists do roam around these places more than anybody, and and regularly take samples from them. So you know that's that's an important point as well. But having heard from both Jeff and Michael, it's interesting to go back to this idea of scale and this mining effort. And I think this perhaps highlights some of the uncertainties that might be upon us because Michael reckoned one harvester would take six and a half thousand years to to harvest a clarion corruptum. And Jeff had an estimate of, I think, Fifteen kilometers per year which would take something like 300 years to do it it all depends on how many machines you have and and so on so on. nobody really knows but i think whatever the true number is the take home from that whole conversation is that we need to remember that these nodules took millions of years to form and they will take millions of years to come back again so whatever whatever that big number might be it's still going to be small relative to the time scale of manganese nodule field
0: that was a pressurized version of one of our full-length episodes. If you enjoyed that and you would like to hear the full-length episode, just match the episode numbers in the feed. Thanks for listening. We'll deep see you next time, and I miss you already.